You're listening to the SSPX Podcast, and welcome to Episode 20 of the Crisis in the Church series. Today, we'll continue our look at the Second Vatican Council, this time looking at the Second and Third Sessions in 1963 and 1964. We'll see how the liberal Rhine Group continued their full-on assault of the preparations for the Council, and how they gained an ally in the newly elected Pope Paul VI, who cleared the way for even more of their work to go on unhindered. We'll also take a moment to discover the problem with the Second Vatican Council documents. At first glance, many of them seem quite orthodox, but these documents were both blatantly ambiguous and also hiding what would become known as neo-modernist time bombs. We'll see what that all means and what effect this will have on the Holy Catholic Church today on the SSPX Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about this series we're doing on the crisis in the church or go back and revisit our previous 19 episodes, or if you want to support this project, please visit sspxpodcast.com crisis. Now we'll turn to our conversation with Father McGilvery. Welcome back to the SSPX podcast and our next section on the crisis in the church series. And we are now into our second episode with Father McGilvery about the course of the Second Vatican Council. Hello, Father. How are you today? Very well, thanks. And how are you, Andrew? Doing well, thank you. And we finished last episode with a look at what happened between the first session and the second session. Most notably, uh, John the 23rd passes away. Pope Paul VI is elected in June, and then we have the second session of the Second Vatican Council starting up uh, in the fall of 1963. Is that kind of our quick synopsis of where we are? Exactly. That's just it. Um, The German bishops, of course, have been preparing their alternative schemata that they're going to propose uh, to take the place of the original ones prepared by the Preparatory Commission. And so we're going into the second session of the Council expecting for some documents to come out of it. Um, as a matter of fact, there will only be one approved during this session, so there's actually not too much to talk about here, um, but we will uh, briefly address the things that do happen. Okay. So there's there's a schema on Our Lady, and that's something exactly. that, is, that is very important. In, in the course of this second session. Is that right? Well, for sure. Um, but this schema on Our Lady, which was supposed to be the first thing that was addressed, it was also something that was not at all pleasing to the uh, liberal theologians of the council uh, for two reasons. One, liberals tend not to like Our Lady very much, but uh, two, um, the Blessed Virgin Mary is an obstacle to ecumenism. It's not a topic that um, the church can speak about without offending Protestants who, who don't like uh, the Catholic the church's focus on and, and love of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so for the, the liberals at the council, it was not acceptable for them to be, for there to be a schema entirely devoted to Our Lady, because that would be placing undue emphasis upon her in their opinion. So their first move at the beginning of the second session of the council was to say, well, let's instead incorporate the schema on Our Lady into the schema on the church, known as Lumen Gentium, um, which still had to be, uh, let's say, uh, debated on, and, and that wouldn't come out until the, the third session of the council. But their, their plan was to, again, delay this document that they don't like, and even um, ultimately to, to incorporate it, it into another one um, so that Our Lady would not be unduly emphasized. Wow. That's fascinating. She doesn't, she doesn't need any, any special emphasis, I guess. It would seem not because when you do that, then you are offensive to Protestants. And that's number one priority for, for the liberals at the council is to uh, open the church to the modern world, but also to the non-Catholic religions uh, in order to promote this kind of ecumenical unity, which is, which is such a priority for them. Okay. 
So you said that there was not much that's happening during this session. Is there anything else of, of note that we should uh, take a look at here in the second session? Yes. The only other thing is that, uh, well, the first schema is finally passed, which is the one on the liturgy, uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium, which is calling for a reform of the, the Roman Mass. Now, it's not actually accomplishing that reform. It's simply laying out the principles for it. And immediately... A, a new commission is going to be appointed to work on actually producing the new rite of mass, uh, once again with Father Bonini as its secretary. Um, and this document here on, on the liturgy, so there's a little bit of um, contention among the Council Fathers before it's actually able to be passed, and it's passed after there's a clarification issued, um, I believe by the, the Secretary of the Council, um, saying that this document does not invoke the Church's infallible teaching authority. It's just a, a pastoral document, um, and because it's not in invoking the Church's infallibility, almost all of the Council Fathers are willing to let it pass. Um, they consider that, well, uh, there has been this very important liturgical movement going on in the church for about a century now, um, begun by, by very great figures such as Don Guéranger and St. Pius X, and um, many of the Council Fathers have failed to realize that, in fact, this liturgical movement in the last 30 years or so has been um, set off track by by liberal and ec ecumenically minded uh, persons in the church um, who have given it an unfortunate um, direction um, more towards the, let's say, the goal of, of emphasizing the instructive aspect of the liturgy. The liturgy is essentially for, for man to instruct him rather than being oriented towards God. God to worship and adore him. Um, so uh, there are, in other words, uh, some problems with the liturgical movement, which most of the Council Fathers um, are not fully aware of, and reassured by the fact that this is not an infallible document, they, they almost uni unanimously agree to pass it. So the, the, the liberals who are interested in pushing through what will inevitably be uh, changes to the liturgy did they did they push to have this seen as a pastoral document instead of a doctrinal document in order to try and get this agenda through or well, I believe the the idea is that um, because we're not engaging the church's supreme teaching authority, um, it's not necessary for every single statement to be, um, let's say, absolutely uh, impeachable or, or or incapable of being criticized. If it's not an infallible infallible document, then then we can kind of relax our standards a little bit. Interesting. So this is this is just a. Um this is a resolution in sense is a schema that that's approved. And this does what this doesn't really change the liturgy in and of itself. This just sets the ball in motion. Exactly. So the, the actual work of constructing a new liturgy is going to be done by this uh, concilium for the implementation of the constitution on sacred liturgy, um, which Pope Paul VI creates immediately after this second session is over. Um, so the, the documents, uh, document Sacrosoctum Concilium is simply calling for uh, such a new liturgy to be created, but the work still has to be done. Okay. And so who is going to be in charge of this, of this uh, council, this concilium? Is this the people who were from the liturgical commission of the Second Vatican Council, or are they someone different? 
Exactly. Well, the majority of those who are put on this new uh, concilium, they come from the preparatory commission on the liturgy, which, as we've said in the last episode, um, is the one which has the greatest, uh, let's say, representation from liberal-leaning prelates. Um, so it was already somewhat liberal to begin with. Um, once again, Father Bunini, uh, the kind of occult Freemason, is the secretary of this commission, and the head of the commission is uh, Cardinal Lercaro, who was a liberal. Um, so we, we are not expecting very good things to come from this. Right. So that, that kind of wraps up you know, the high points, low points, however you want to describe it, of the of the second session of the Second Vatican Council. And, sure. and like we saw after the first session, there's some time. This is only really taking place between October and December. So you have basically all, you know, late winter, spring, summer mm-hmm. of the next year. Um, last time we saw that there were meetings in Germany of, you know, various council fathers and, and theologians. Um, anything like that happening between the second and third sessions now? Well, as usual, the German bishops are up to their antics. Uh, they're oh, meeting to prepare for uh, more more disasters. Uh, in this case, they are um, still concerned by this schema on Our Lady, which, although it's been agreed to incorporate it into the schema on the Church, um, what the the German bishops are really afraid of is that the Blessed Virgin will be given the, the title officially uh, by the Church of being Mediatrix of All Graces. That's something, again, which they know is going to be an obstacle to ecumenism. And uh, they decide at this uh, council or, or meeting that they have at Innsbruck that they don't want this to take place um, because, again, it's it's wow. an obstacle to ecumenism. And also what they say is that it's still a disputed question and the Church shouldn't be um, proposed doctrine which is disputed um, of course it wasn't really disputed by any orthodox theologians at the time it was really just um, they took advantage of the fact that yes a few of the very liberal leaning theologians um, whose orthodoxy was quite questionable they were the ones calling this this doctrine into question um, but these German bishops said oh because because a few theologians are saying this we have to consider it a disputed doctrine and so we shouldn't mention it in the council is that just a tactic on their end? They're, they're saying, hey, there's a few people who disagree with this, therefore we shouldn't have it in the council. It's not that there was actually a, a real dispute among sound theologians uh, on this question, but rather that there were just a few liberal-leaning ones who, um, because of their lack of orthodoxy, were willing to question it. And so it was really just a pretext for for um, pushing aside this, this idea of giving Our Lady this title. It was just a pretext, but not really a sound theological argument. Wow. That's, that's heartbreaking. I mean, we see, you know, at the beginning of last episode, at the very beginning of the whole council, we see, you know, Pope John the 23rd basically saying, you know, we're not going to listen to these prophets of doom. Possibly he's talking about, you know, the Fatima apparitions there. Mm-hmm. And now we see again, our, our lady, um, you know, being pushed off to the side, not only during the second session, but in the discussions between the second and the third session, um, she's um, not being given any sort of due honor at all during this council, it seems. Absolutely. It is concerning. Uh, and another point of concern here in this uh, intermediary phase between the second and third sessions is that um, the rules of procedure for the council are, are changed in such a way that 
uh, beginning with the third session, any council father who wishes to speak at the council has to provide uh, a written summary of his speech five days in advance when he wants to give it. Um, and he has to have the support of at least 70 council fathers in order to be allowed to speak. Um, meaning that, um, once again, minority opinions or, or those who aren't already, let's say, actively directing the, the flow of the council, they're going to be silenced. They're going to have practically no chance to to say something or object if if there's a turn of events which is let's say harmful to to um, tradition and the right uh, let's say exposition of the church's doctrine so for example let's say a liberal uh, bishop or cardinal stands up and and gives a terrible speech in which he's promoting something which is very uh, harmful to faith or morals um, and one of the council fathers wants to object to that and 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 show how uh, these ideas are wrong or dangerous, um, he has to wait at least five days in order to be able to do so. And he needs the support of a number of other people, at least 70 other council fathers to be able to speak up. Wow. That's, that's outstanding. Um, so we've been focusing a lot on, on the, on the more liberal players in the council. Um, can we talk for just a minute about who is in this minority in this, I guess we could say conservative minority or orthodox minority? Sure, of course. And, and just to quickly clarify, of course, um, the, the vast majority of the council fathers are neither extremely conservative nor extremely liberal. Um, the liberals and the conservatives um, are both minorities, but uh, the liberals are the ones that enter the council well organized. The conservatives, okay. it takes them a while to realize, oh, there, there's a real problem here. And if we don't react, then this council is going to be a disaster. And it's only really between the second and third sessions that they start to get their act together and get organized. Organized. And it's largely um, through the influence of Archbishop Lefebvre, who had already, in fact, been a member on the Central Preparatory Commission before the Council. Um, so he had an, an important role from the beginning. But now is really where he starts to step, for, step forward and organize. A, um, the, the, the minority opposition in a group which is called the Cetus Internationalis Patrum. Um, so the Cetus, for short, is, is this group of the, uh, so literally the international group of fathers who are uh, fighting for orthodoxy in the council. Um, the Cetus is actually headed by Archbishop Sigod of Brazil, um, who, who is a conservative prelate that was, uh, that befriended Archbishop Lefebvre. Um, and then it also has two important cardinals, uh, representatives of this uh, Cetus, Cardinal Siri and Cardinal Brown. Okay. So there are some, there are some, cardinals and church fathers that are that are in this group that are trying to you know like you said kind of organize themselves they see what's happening and they're trying to get organized and get their feet under them um but again that's, that's what 250 or so uh church fathers that are in this group compared to you know the, well, the broader whole of of 2400 i mean like you said exactly. the majority are neither liberal nor conservative mm -hmm. but it's not a whole lot that are actively trying to maintain orthodoxy in the council Right. And so they're going to have to limit themselves uh, primarily to just, let's say, <laughs> Uh, limiting the damage that's going to happen, as in they can't uh, they can't eliminate from the the documents all of the uh, phrases which are questionable or ambiguous, um, but at least 
what what they do succeed in doing is is often blocking the the things that are extremely bad um, and inserting here and there clarifications which reaffirm the church's uh, traditional teaching um, but unfortunately um, the, they're unable to block the the liberal flow of the council as a whole the most that they can do is to minimize its its bad consequences wow all right so we now have two two parties that are uh that are getting organized and getting ready. It sounds a lot like politics. I mean, <laughs> when, when you're describing this, I mean, it, it, it shouldn't, it really shouldn't be like this, but it, that's kind of what it's turning into. Is that a fair kind of comparison? Yes. I mean, t- to be fair, of course, the, the church is a institution which is both divine and human. So there always will be uh, politics within the church. But here at the Second Vatican Council, what's what's disturbing is that, um, as we said last time, it's not just a, a question of prudence. Uh, is is this or that doctrine prudent to define at this, at this point? But really, it, there are fundamental disagreements among the bishops, which was represented, let's say, even before the council began. In the Central Preparatory Commission, you had two uh, very important cardinals of the church, Cardinal Ottaviani and Cardinal Bea, um, who stood up, stood up and, and, and openly disagreed with each other about the question of religious liberty or religious tolerance. Um, and Archbishop Lefebvre, who also was on that Central Preparatory Commission, he was impressed by the fact that here, even within the Roman Curia, you have two uh, very important cardinals who have completely uh, opposing views on a very fundamental issue. Um, and this is what is uh, so, so uh, well, perilous about the Second Vatican Council and what makes it different from, say, the, the First Vatican Council um, or even the, the Council of Trent. Okay. So we're going to be getting into the third session of the council, uh, and there's a lot that's going to be happening. You know, we, not a lot happened in the first session, not a lot happened in the second session. But once we get into the third session, some things really start moving and some documents really start coming to the fore. Um, but before we do that, can we can we take a little bit of a step back and kind of examine uh, the question of what's wrong with the with the Second Vatican Council's documents? I mean, we know as, as traditional Catholics, we've, I mean, I've been hearing it since I was alive, basically. Vatican II is bad. Um, but what is it that makes these documents so harmful? Well, it's an excellent question. Uh, there, there really are two things. The first is the ambiguity of, of the language of the documents. Um, we have to remember that First of all, the, the program of the council as laid out by uh, Pope John the 23rd was to uh, speak positively and avoid condemnations. Uh, and as soon as you omit to condemn the errors that are opposed to the truth, uh, then, then it's quite possible, um, for people to misinterpret your statements and, and even interpret them in a way that's, that's opposed to orthodox doctrine. Um, so first of all, a lack of condemnations and then even intentional vagueness because these are uh, compromised documents in which, let's say, it's clear that, that you can't get all of the Council of Fathers to agree upon saying something um, which is clearly conservative or clearly liberal. And so instead, there, there have to be certain ambiguous statements which are open to interpretation. And that's the only way to get everyone to, to agree. Um, so, so they're compromised documents with a certain intentional vagueness. 
Um, and the vagueness is also there for uh, ecumenical reasons, because if you state the Catholic doctrine too clearly, uh, then you risk offending the Protestant and Orthodox observers who are there at the council. Uh, we have to remember that, for example, um, the... Uh, certain members of the, the council agreed in advance that they would ensure that communism was not explicitly condemned because this was a condition um, for the leaders of the Russian Orthodox Church to be able to attend the council as observers. Um, basically, the communists said, uh, we will permit them to come and attend the council provided that you don't condemn communism. And so that's one example of um, where, let's say, ecumenical interests resulted in uh, a, a very unfortunate ambiguity where even though communism was probably the number one thing that most council fathers wanted to condemn, it wasn't condemned explicitly. Um, so, so that's the first problem is this ambiguity in the council documents. But it would not be sufficient to say that they're just ambiguous. The truth is that there are statements which are genuinely, authentically uh, modernist, even if their their modernism is is concealed in in somewhat deceptive language, or or it's not immediately evident what are the the conclusions or consequences that would be drawn from these statements. That's why they're often called uh, time bombs, which is to say that they're little little phrases planted in the documents, um, which the the modernists or neo-modernists intentionally put there um, with with the uh, plan to draw out later all of the implicit consequences. Wow. And and this is not something that would be like you said, these are these are time bombs. They're not super obvious if you're reading through it, but it but it again kind of opens the door. It, it allows for um, this interpretation according to these neo-modernist theologies that we've that we've seen that we've seen, you know, with De Lubac and Terre de Chardin and all these guys. Exactly. Um, and, and so all it takes is one very short and simple sentence, like, uh, you know, it, it's um, due to man's personal dignity that he has the right to uh, profess his religious his religion publicly, whether it be the true or the false one. Um, all it takes is one short statement like that, and then you have um, all kinds of disastrous consequences that unfold later. All right. So that helps. Thank you for kind of giving us a, a grasp of, you know, what is going to be in these documents or, or at least the, the broad overview of why these documents are, are troublesome. Mm -hmm. um, and then I guess let's dive into the third session then. And this is going to be happening in, in the fall of 1964. Um, and there's going to be a couple things that are going to be happening here. Um, I guess you, you said two important schemas that are going to be brought to the brought to a vote and brought to discussion. Sure. Uh, so the first of these is Lumen Gentium, or the dogmatic constitution on the church. And so, as we said already, the schema on Our Lady was going to be incorporated as just a, a part of this um, overarching schema on the church. Um, there, in, with reference to Our Lady, she is given the title of Mediatrix, which was for the more liberal council fathers a, a great defeat, in fact. Um, however, mm -hmm. not Mediatrix of all graces. Uh, so there was still a little bit of, of a watering down of that doctrine. Okay. Um, but more broadly, this this schema or dogmatic constitution on the church is problematic because um, it, it prefers the term communion of the people of God instead of mystical body to describe the church, um, which which is one which allows there to be um, 
very fuzzy boundaries in the church. Um, so it's possible for people to somehow be part of a communion, even if they're not um, hierarchically united under one governing authority. A communion is a term which allows for, um, let's say, different degrees of participation. And and there's this novelty, which is coined in this document. Um, well, to be fair, it's actually... Uh, stated in, in Unitatis Red Integratio, another document that we're about to discuss, that there's such a thing as partial communion. Um, and so this idea of the people of God being a communion allows for partial and full. And it allows for us to speak about non-Catholics as somehow being members of the church, just not perfectly or fully. So it's it's very much a document which is ecumenical in in its um, intention, trying to make Protestants feel better about being Protestants, um, and and to abandon this supposedly rigid uh, or or um, let's say a, a stance of the church which was branded by the liberals as being um, too stiff and uncompromising. I, I was just going to say, Father, this is uh, this sounds familiar. Uh, because many times the Society of St. Pius X is considered not in full communion. Mm-hmm. And many of the society priests are saying, what does that even mean? That, that, that's exactly. not anything that, that really makes sense, but this is where this is coming from. It's the same sort of kind of ambiguous language. Either say that it is or it isn't. For sure. And and the idea of, uh, let's say, the church being a mystical body, it really doesn't allow for this am- ambiguity. And and this is something that Pope Pius Twelfth in his encyclical uh, Mystici Corporis on, on the mystical body of Christ, he points out um, that, let's say, with the metaphor of a body, it's absurd to imagine a body with, you know, certain members just lying around separated from from the main part. Um, you know, if, if your hand is cut off from you, so St. Augustine, um, it's no longer a part of the body, and so it ceases to live with the life of the body. And, and that's precisely the point with this analogy is that um, in, in a mystical body, because it's a body, it has to be really one with, with a very intimate uh, and close union. Whereas when you start talking about a, a communion of the people of God, this, this is a, a term which is much more ambiguous and which allows for um, supposedly various degrees of participation. Wow. Very interesting. Um, so what else is, is in this document, Lumen Gentium, that we should know about, Father? Sure. Well, let's say one other point on that same subject is, is a very problematic phrase that the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, which really is just making even more explicit this idea that um, the Catholic Church is one thing, and then the Church of Christ is another, which is broader, and maybe it exists in its fullness or, or perfection in the Catholic Church, but there there are certain elements um, of, the, uh, of the Church of Christ uh, which can be found outside of the Catholic Church. Uh, so, so there's that. Um, but then also on, on another topic, there is um, a certain compromise or erosion of the proper notion of priesthood, um, which is something that we already saw in the liturgical reform. In the liturgical reform, the, part of the problem is that the focus is no longer upon worshiping God, but upon uh, the instruction and benefit that people receive by their, their active participation in the liturgy. Uh, and this is reflected in in the document Lumen Gentium, where it talks about the priesthood. It, it first of all says um, that... Well, the priest is defined by his relation to the people. Um, his his essential role is to preach, um, to exercise their ministry for the good of their brethren, uh, and and unfortunately, 
this results in a, um, let's say, devaluation of the priest's role as offering the Holy Eucharist, the sacrifice of the Mass. That's the real dignity of the priesthood, and, and the priest's primary role is to uh, consecrate the body and blood of Christ at the altar and offer it in sacrifice. And then it's only secondarily that he's meant to preach, instruct, and, and help the other members of the mystical body. We were talking about this in uh, one of our previous episodes with, uh, I think, Father Father Robinson, and we were talking about the nature of religion and why, you know, one religion can be the same as the other or equal. Uh, and, he, and he basically said that he said, you know, priests today are seen as, you know, worship leaders. They're not yeah. the ones who do the sacrifice. They are seen as people who just kind of help everyone else get to get to salvation or have a nice religion or have, you know, a meal or something like that. And, and this sure. is directly stemming from that. This is, they, they've watered down the priesthood and made it such that, you know, it's just Father William helping us out with, with our worship. And that's it. That's right. The priest essentially becomes a kind of social worker. Um, right. and, and we see everywhere, really, in the council, an excessive focus upon man, a kind of um, exaggerated humanism. And, and it plays out in so many different aspects. Here it plays out in, in the way that we look at the priesthood, um, putting the priest's ministry towards his fellow men first before the duty of, of offering sacrifice to God. Um, but we see it also uh, in, in, let's say, the, the theology of marriage. Um, especially this will be reflected later on in, in the new code of canon law. Now, marriage is not so much about having children who are to populate heaven for eternal life as the, the mutual help that husband and wife give each other. Um, everywhere we see this emphasis upon um, man, his personal dignity, and kind of helping man to fulfill himself. And not, there's not so much of a focus upon man in his relation to and, and duties towards God. Right. So that's Lumen Gentium. And mm -hmm. then the next one we're going to be talking about, you said, is uh, Unitatis Redensa Gratio. Exactly. That's the one. Uh, so this is the document on ecumenism, which has to do with uh, the union of all Christians. And the idea is that, um, let's say, it's it's deplorable that Christians throughout the world are, are disunited um, and Let's say that the church has always seen this as a problem on the side of those who have left the church, heretics and schismatics, and that the church herself still has that unity which Christ willed her to have um, when he prayed for, for her to be one uh, at the Last Supper. Um, now, with Unitatis Redintegratio, um, there's first of all a kind of um, lamenting over the fact that somehow Christ's church is not one because of, of these schisms and heresies. And then uh, there is an attempt, however, to, let's say, console the, the Protestants uh, in saying that even though they have departed from the Catholic Church and don't possess the fullness of the means of salvation, nevertheless, um, the, the document says, these separated churches and communities, though we believe they suffer from defects already mentioned, have by no means been deprived of significance and importance in the mystery of salvation, for the Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as means of salvation." So there's this very, uh, so this is an example, let's say, not merely of ambiguity, but of a real time bomb, where yeah. there is a statement which is contrary to Catholic teaching, and, and whose consequences, especially as they're developed in the post-conciliar period, will be disastrous. Um, so the, to, to call a, a church, or more properly a sect, which is separated from the one true Church of Christ, to call it a means of salvation is, is absolutely unthinkable. Um, but that's precisely what is being done here. 
um, in the name of ecumenism. We're trying to, um, let's say, reach out to our separated brethren and and welcome them and, and make them feel accepted. And so we're going to um, not merely point out the fact that, yes, they possess certain, certain treasures, which are ultimately derived from the Catholic Church. They might have, um, let's say, much of sacred scripture, or they might still have certain sacraments which are validly administrated, like like baptism and, and marriage, matrimony. Um, but this is going much farther in saying that the the various heretical or schismatic sects themselves are used by the Spirit of God as means of salvation. And that's what we, under no circumstances, can accept. Yeah, so that's that's the main, that's the main word. I mean, at, at the end of what you quoted there, Mm-hmm. The Spirit of Christ has not refrained from using them as a means of salvation. I mean, yes, we, like you said, Father, we know that people can attain salvation if they are separated from the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. That is possible, but that is done through the Catholic Church, not by sure. means of a, a different church. There's, well, there's no salvation there. Exactly. It's precisely in spite of their adhering to a false or heretical sect that they're saved. Um, and those those sacraments which the uh, Protestant sects retain, um, such as baptism, in and of themselves, um, they, they are very good. But for Protestants, they would be, per se, not a means of salvation, but rather uh, they would add to the condemnation of the heretic. Because as we know from, from our Catholic theology, a sacrament which is not received with proper dispositions um, is, is received sacrilegiously, and that actually adds to a person's condemnation. It doesn't, doesn't help them. And the Church Fathers were very clear on this, um, especially with the case of baptism. Uh, St. Augustine and other Church Fathers talk about this and say, uh, just as, let's say, with the, with the Ark of Noah, um, Noah and his family were were saved uh, from the waters of the flood, and and the earth was purified. But for everyone else, those waters were, let's say, for their um, for their destruction. They were drowned in the waters, and and the waters of baptism are kind of like that for for those who receive baptism worthily. That is without the obstacle of of heresy or schism. Um, and with the, the proper dispositions, those waters are salvific and they, they cleanse us from sin. Um, but for those who receive uh, a sacrament, even the sacrament of baptism, um, with an, a serious obstacle such as heresy or schism, which is knowingly and, and willfully adhered to, um, that's a, a sacrilegious reception of the sacrament and it's not going to help such a person for salvation. Wow. So that wraps up uh, kind of our, our look at this third session of the second Vatican council. Mm-hmm. Um, and before we close today, father, I wanted to ask, uh, this is a little bit off script, but taking a step back, it seems that the more liberal council fathers are going out of their way to appease non-believers or, or Protestants or people who are separated from the Catholic church. What is it that they, what was their intent uh, why, why was it that they deviated so, so much from the tradition of the Catholic Church to want to reach out in such a, I, I mean, I guess the church has always wanted to reach out and bring people back to the faith, mm-hmm. but they're not doing that. They are, they're watering down the faith for the Protestant. What was their, what was their motive and reasoning? Well, it's an excellent question, and it's perhaps one that goes uh, beyond the scope of what I can adequately address right here and now. Um, and in a certain sense, I'd also have to be a, a liberal to fully understand why. <laughs> um, but I think that to a great extent, um, the church at the time was kind of 
intimidated in a sense by man's um, modern man's scientific and technological progress and there was almost a, a certain inferior, inferiority complex um, among many members of the church hierarchy um, and and so they thought uh, they seemed to think that they um, and the, that the Catholic Church was was somehow weak and becoming obsolete in the face of modern man's progress um, so that may have something to do with this the sense of we have to praise modern man and we have to praise um, all these different religions um it, it's a kind of strange devaluation uh, de, devalu um i'm sorry um you're you're basically failing to value properly those treasures which the catholic church has um because of a a mistaken or silly idea of the uh the greatness of modern man and his technological and scientific progress um, that's that's a part of it, but but honestly, there'd be a lot more which which I have to sure. think over more deeply to give a, sure. a satisfactory answer to. Yeah, no, that's fine, and I just kind of sprung that on you on the last second. But <laughs> sure, I, I'm, I'm going through this and, and thinking why why yeah. why do it? Um, uh, but obviously, I, I guess there were there were reasons, but. Sure. Uh, well, and, and certainly a lack of um, understanding of the church's doctrine. As we said before, with the modernists, they have a, a flawed philosophy. They haven't uh, taught or haven't properly, they haven't been taught or haven't properly understood um, scholastic philosophy with all of its richness and its its ability to grasp reality as it really is. Um, so, so modernists, sure. they're working with a flawed philosophy and therefore uh, also a flawed theology, which requires sound philosophy in order to work to, to to function properly and so because they themselves don't understand their their own faith um as they ought to and they haven't yet elaborated um a proper system of theology it leads to all kinds of deviations in practice absolutely well father thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about this uh and going through the second and the third sessions with us and, and next time we'll be speaking about the fourth and final session of the second vatican council uh, and I guess what there's uh, four distinct documents that we're going to be looking at there. Mm -hmm. um, That's and kind of closing up our, our study on that. Absolutely. I look forward to it. All right. Well, thank you, Father. We appreciate it very much. Very good. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank God you. Bless. Thank you for listening to and watching episode 20 of our Crisis in the Church series here on the SSPX podcast. In episode 21, we'll complete our study of the Second Vatican Council itself and discover why 1965 was perhaps one of, if not the most momentous years in history of the Catholic Church. And in later episodes, we'll be taking a deeper look at the aftermath of the Council. If you have a question on the topic of the crisis, please feel free to ask it at sspxpodcast.com slash crisis. Please share this episode with someone who you think might enjoy it. And if they don't know what a podcast is, please show them so that they can take advantage of all our episodes. And if you have the ability to set up a monthly recurring donation of 5 or 10 or $20 on sspxpodcast.com, it would help us immensely to complete this Crisis in the Church project. Until next week, thank you for listening, and God bless you.